This is History West Midlands. In 1918, after decades of campaigning, the Representation of the People Act gave the vote to some women. For the first time, they would be able to vote in parliamentary elections, although they would have to wait another 10 years before all women were enfranchised on equal terms with men. This was no doubt a momentous achievement, and today we owe much to the suffragists and suffragettes who signed petitions organised marches, chained themselves to railings and went on hunger strike, all so that women could have a say in how their country was run. But while these campaigners were pressing for women to have the right to vote in general elections, many were already voting and standing as candidates in local elections. Anna Muggeridge, a postgraduate student at the University of Worcester has been researching the pioneering women politicians of the black country. In this programme, she explores the area's first female local councillors who were elected before the Second World War. These women came from all, and no, political parties. Some were very wealthy and well-connected. Others were ordinary, working-class women. But all were united in their commitment to making a difference, through their work in local government, to the lives of people in the towns which make up the black country. Historians have uncovered evidence that some women had voted in parish elections in the early 19th century, but the 1832 Reform Act first enshrined in law that voters in all elections had to be male persons. This did not mean that all men were enfranchised, and in fact, in order to vote, a man had to own property worth at least £10, an enormous sum at the time, which excluded many working-class men from the ballot. From the 1860s, women began to campaign for the right to vote, and while they would not succeed in being allowed to vote in parliamentary elections until after the First World War, from 1869, some women could vote in local elections. Towards the end of the century, they also started to win the right to stand in these local elections, and in 1907, the law allowed women to stand for election to borough and county councils. Only three years later, in 1910, the black country got its first woman councillor. Ada Newman, a Conservative, won election to Walsall Council, and became only the 13th woman in the whole country to be elected to a borough council. Ada never married, but she came from a prominent family of local industrialists and her father had also been very active in local politics. He was first elected as a Conservative councillor in the 1880s and in 1903 he was Mayor of Walsall. Sadly, he died shortly before Ada's election, so he never got to see her become the black country's first woman councillor, but she was clearly carrying on the family tradition. Ada Newman was lucky to be from a wealthy family, as this meant that she did not have to work and she could employ domestic servants to do her housework. She was therefore able to devote much of her time to council duties once elected and was a stalwart of the local Conservative Party. Nonetheless, despite these advantages, she was for 12 years the only woman councillor in Walsall. 
As a pioneer, she had to forge her own path as the first woman in local government, not just in Walsall, but in the wider black country too. And this might at times have been a lonely position for her. She was, though, used to speaking her mind to men. She was passionate about cricket and for many years acted as Walsall Cricket Club's scorer in her spare time. Ada was still a councillor when the First World War broke out in 1914. No other women had been elected locally by this point, and during the war, elections were suspended across the country for the duration of the conflict. But come November 1918, municipal elections once again took place, and in the black country, three more women councillors were elected. Emily Francis won a seat in Stourbridge, and in West Bromwich, two women, Charlotte Hazel and Grace Cottrell, joined the Borough Council. After this point, we start to see a huge increase in the number of women elected to local councils. By the outbreak of the Second World War, a total of 50 women had been elected to local councils across the black country, an astonishing number, especially given that the area didn't see its first woman MP until 1964. It is hard to know exactly why there was such an increase in the number of women councillors after the First World War. A change in the law probably contributed. Before 1918, only women householders had been able to stand for election, which effectively meant only single women or widows could put themselves forward. After 1918, a change in the law meant that all women, including married women, could become councillors, increasing the pool of potential candidates. But more than this, many historians have noted that after women were first awarded the vote in parliamentary elections, women's organisations, politicians, journalists and other commentators all celebrated the new woman citizen. Many efforts were made to educate and appeal to the women voters in general elections, and women were encouraged to involve themselves in politics at all levels. As historians point out, local politics was much more accessible to women than parliamentary politics, as it didn't require long absences from home, for instance. Many prospective women councillors perhaps also felt that they could have a greater impact on issues which directly affected them, such as maternal and child welfare matters, if they were involved with how they were run. All of these factors probably combined to contribute to the increase in the number of women councillors after the First World War. But where had these women come from? What drove them to stand for election in the first place? Obviously, every individual woman had her own personal reasons for standing, just as men did. Some, like Ada Newman, came from families where there was a long tradition of political activism. The two women elected in West Bromwich in 1918, for instance, both had family members who had been involved with politics. Grace Cottrell's father and husband had both been members of the council for many years, while Charlotte Hazel's brother Alfred had been MP for West Bromwich between 1905 and 1910. But occasionally, women drew the men in their families into local politics instead – In Wolverhampton, when the Labour councillor Edith Palmer died in 1934, midway through her term of office, her husband was elected as her replacement. And many other women had no family history of being involved with local politics, deciding to stand instead because they believed passionately in a specific cause or issue. 
Interestingly, very few of the 50 women elected before the Second World War appear to have been involved with the suffrage movement. In Wolverhampton, Miss Beatrice Pearson stood for election to the council in 1912. Rather than standing as a conservative or liberal candidate, she declared that she would be a suffrage councillor, but perhaps unsurprisingly, she failed to garner much support and didn't stand again. Just over a decade later, though, Wolverhampton did elect the only black country councillor who was an active suffragette, the socialist Emma Sproson. Emma had even gone to prison before the First World War for refusing to pay her dog licence in protest against women not having the vote. A working-class woman, she had had several jobs, including a spell working in domestic service, before her marriage to Frank, a local postman who fully supported her political career. She undertook protests locally and nationally before the First World War, campaigning for women's enfranchisement. After women won the right to vote in parliamentary elections, she immediately turned her attention to local politics, standing as a member of the Independent Labour Party in several local elections. She was unsuccessful the first couple of times she stood, but was finally elected in 1921, the first woman councillor in Wolverhampton. On hearing the news of her victory, she waved a red flag on the town hall balcony, which sparked some controversy in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. As a councillor, she was known for her commitment to women's rights and especially sought to ensure the welfare of the vulnerable, even when this went against the party line. For instance, when she was made a member of the council's health committee, she became aware of some financial malpractice at Wolverhampton's fever hospital. Keen to expose this, she wrote a pamphlet she called Fever Hospital Facts and Fairy Tales. As a result of the scandal this provoked, some of the lowest paid staff at the hospital, mostly laundresses and seamstresses, had their hours of work reduced and their pay increased. But her actions caused rifts in the local Labour Party, who had not wanted her to publish her findings, so she left the party and stood as an independent socialist at the next election. Red Emma is probably the most well-remembered woman councillor from this period. Today, you can find a blue plaque on Wolverhampton Magistrates Court commemorating her achievements. And if you look closely, it is possible to find clues to other women councillors in the names of local buildings and institutions. For instance, children in Smethwick today can still attend the Annie Leonard Primary School. This was originally opened in 1954, named after Councillor Annie Leonard, who was extremely active in local government and had been a member of the council's education committee for many years. Annie was first elected as a Labour Party representative in 1923 and went on to serve as mayor of Smethwick and as a borough magistrate. Indeed, she only stood down in 1961 because, as she said, I am 80 and I think it's time I made way for younger people. Even once she'd left the council, she maintained an interest in the Annie Leonard School. In 1962, she donated £100 as prizes for children at the school. As she told the Birmingham Post, It is not very much, but I hope it will be of some encouragement to the children. Another working-class woman who served as a councillor into old age was Mabel Dale in Wolverhampton. Mrs Dale had been a member of many local women's organisations and was a founding member of the Wolverhampton Birth Control Clinic. 
This was established in 1926 to provide contraceptive advice for married women, although this was still a highly controversial topic at the time. But Mrs Dale was not one to shy away from controversy, even into old age. She was elected to Wolverhampton Council in 1945 and was still serving in 1963 when she was 82. An article from the Birmingham Post described how she startled 200 delegates at a conference on old people's welfare when she detailed the problems that many old people faced, describing chronic loneliness, being forced out of their homes and into hospitals, and even malnutrition due to poverty when trying to live on a pension. And she urged doctors not to patronise the elderly or to treat them like babies. She told her audience... I have been a councillor for years, and if anybody tells me I'm not good enough for the job, I'll give them a punch. Emma Sproson, Annie Leonard and Mabel Dale were all Labour councillors, but women from across the political spectrum made their mark on local government in the years before the Second World War. Fifty women were elected as councillors in the Black Country before 1939. Of these, 18 were members of the Labour Party, seven were Conservatives and four belonged to the Liberal Party. But 21, so almost half, were independent councillors, meaning that they didn't belong to any political party. Emily Francis, the first woman councillor elected in Stourbridge, was one of these. She told voters there that she believed that No party politics should enter local government. Any question affecting the women and children should receive careful attention with women being particularly well-qualified to address these issues. In fact, historians have shown how in the late 19th century, some women who were active in the anti-suffrage movement had actually used these exact same arguments to suggest that in fact women shouldn't have the parliamentary franchise. These anti-suffrage women felt that women didn't need a vote in general elections because they should concentrate their efforts on local politics, which they thought should be free from party politics. There was no need, they argued, to bring partisan left-wing versus right-wing views into what were essentially local matters, like paving roads or providing streetlights, and they felt that women should concentrate on these kinds of issues. Some anti-suffragists also felt that because so many issues discussed at local level affected women and children, women should address these and leave national parliamentary politics to men. Although there is no evidence that Emily Francis had belonged to any anti-suffrage organisation or had campaigned against women having the parliamentary franchise, it is really interesting to see how she shared some of the ideas and arguments used by some of those in the anti-suffrage organisations. It wasn't just Emily Francis. In West Bromwich, Independent councillor Grace Wilkes, who was first elected in 1937, told the local press as late as 1965 that she was as strongly opposed as ever to politics in local government. Into the 1960s, half a century after women had been voting in general elections, some of the arguments that these anti-suffragists had made in the 19th century still held sway among some women councillors. Grace Wilkes's views were arguably influenced by her parents, as both her mother and father had at one point been local councillors. In fact, politics was quite the family affair. Her mother was Grace Cottrell, West Bromwich's first woman councillor. Grace Senior was the daughter of Frederick Jefferson, 
one of the founders of Kenrick and Jefferson, the stationery manufacturer which remained a major employer in West Bromwich, and so she grew up in considerable privilege. In 1900, just before she married, her father's company was valued on the stock exchange at about £60,000, or about £4.5 in today's money. Nonetheless, it was homes for ordinary people in West Bromwich with which she was most concerned as a councillor. In her first election campaign in 1918, she promised to provide homes fit for heroes as Prime Minister David Lloyd George famously campaigned for at the end of the First World War. Once elected, she sat on numerous council committees, including the Highways, Tuberculosis, Births and Estates, Finance, Housing and Town Planning Committees, all of which discussed issues affecting daily life in West Bromwich. Her hard work, and probably also the fact that her father ran such an important local business, meant that in 1926 she was elected West Bromwich's first ever woman mayor. Councillor Mercer opened her investiture ceremony by saying that she was not only the wife of a man who is highly respected, but also the daughter of one of West Bromwich's greatest townsmen. Referring to her husband Thomas, who coincidentally had been mayor the year before. Nonetheless, he was clear that in electing Grace, the council was giving honour where honour was due. Thanking the council for electing her to be mayor, Grace told the assembled chamber that I do not forget that to attack the housing conditions in 1918 and to get homes fit for heroes was what the people had sent me to the council to accomplish. She praised the slum clearance scheme and construction of new houses, but acknowledged that there was still much to be done, promising to continue the current house-building programme. She was re-elected mayor the following year, 1927. By this time, the position of mayor was largely a formality. The mayor held no real power. Though he or she was chief magistrate during his or her term, much of the day-to-day role was ceremonial or else performing civic duties like opening fates or awarding prizes at flower shows. One councillor was always elected mayor from among those currently in office by the other councillors and aldermen, and it was often simply a way for an individual's long service to their town to be recognised. When Grace was mayor... In 1926 and 1927, it was still really unusual for a woman to be elected to this position. In fact, she was one of only 13 women mayors elected nationwide that year, compared with over 600 men. She had worked hard as a councillor and deserved her place among those women, but her wealth and family connections to one of West Bromwich's leading employers probably helped to smooth her path. This doesn't mean that only rich, middle-class women could be elected mayor, though. In 1934, Gertrude Cresswell became mayor of Walsall, and she came from a far more humble background. Born to working-class parents in rural Derbyshire, Gertrude was the eldest of nine children and worked as a teacher until she was 30, when she married Frederick Cresswell, and the marriage bar forced her to give up work. The couple moved to Walsall in 1900, two years after their marriage, when Frederick was offered a teaching post there, and they lived in the town for the rest of her life. In the years before the First World War, she began to be involved with local politics, joining the burgeoning Labour Party while also being active in several organisations for housewives, like the Women's Cooperative Guild and the Mothers' Union. 
she stood unsuccessfully as a Labour candidate in a couple of local elections and finally managed to be voted in as a councillor in 1925. While Gertrude wasn't the first woman elected in the town, Ada Newman had stepped down in 1922, she was at that time the only woman councillor. In fact, of the 50 women who were elected before the Second World War, many were the only female representative, or one of only a very small minority, on their town or borough council. This wasn't just true in the black country. Indeed, historians who have investigated women local councillors in other parts of the country often point to the fact that because these women were the only women on a given council, they could at times be pigeonholed into taking on responsibility for what were considered women's issues, usually work relating to maternity care or child welfare or housing. It is certainly true that the majority of women councillors across the black country sat on committees which held responsibility for these so-called women's issues. But it is inaccurate to say that they were only involved with this kind of work. Women councillors sat alongside men on committees related to finance or town planning or any number of other non-gendered committees. And of course, they were elected and attended regular council meetings just as male councillors did. In taking up these so-called women's issues, there is also a suggestion that for many women councillors, this was their way of carving out a degree of expertise based on their own experiences. For example, Charlotte Hazel, the councillor in West Bromwich, whose brother had been an MP, sat on every single council committee relating to children's welfare, and, as a local magistrate, she chaired the West Bromwich Juvenile Court. But as she had been a teacher for many years, she perhaps felt that she had the skills and knowledge needed for dealing with children and their issues. She never married or had children herself, and perhaps for this reason, she did not become involved with any maternity work. She might not have felt that she had the same expertise as she had with issues related to children. Or she might simply not have been interested in this kind of work. Unlike early women MPs, very few women councillors, and certainly none in the black country, left diaries or letters to the archival record, so it's very hard to know exactly what they were thinking, or why they chose to be involved with certain kinds of council work and not others. Reading local newspapers, for instance, reveals that Gertrude Cresswell, Walsall's first woman mayor, was extremely involved with local women's organisations which campaigned for better maternity care for women. For instance, she was active in Walsall's branch of the Women's Cooperative Guild, an organisation for working-class housewives which did huge amounts to campaign for maternal welfare. As soon as she was elected to the council, she sat on the maternity committee which, among other things, had control of the various maternity hospitals in Walsall and provided some support for local mothers and their babies. Mrs Cresswell was herself a mother of five, although one of her sons had died in a tragic accident at the age of two, so she was no stranger to the challenges most working-class mothers faced at the time. Soon, she became chair of the maternity committee, and when she was elected mayor of Walsall in 1934, the local press reported that this was largely in recognition of her many years' hard work on this committee. Though she wasn't a midwife or doctor, she used her own experiences to carve out a kind of expertise for herself in this area. 
In fact, while again it is important to stress that women counsellors weren't just involved with mother and baby issues, it was these kinds of issues which could draw women together from across the political spectrum. In 1938, Walsall Council had decided to bring the Maternity Committee under the auspices of its Health Committee. This meant that it would no longer be chaired by a woman, and, after a year, many women in the town felt that maternity issues were no longer being given the attention they deserved because the Health Committee had so many other demands on its time. So, Walsall's three women councillors, Gertrude Cresswell and her colleagues Annie McShane and Mary Bradley Dewsbury, launched a campaign to have the two committees separated again. This is a woman's business and women are going to have a say in it, said councillor Annie McShane, who led the demand for maternity care to be given proper consideration by the council. Gertrude Cresswell agreed. The maternity committee needed to be led by people saturated with the special knowledge pertaining to maternity and child welfare, not the men who were currently in charge. While all three women councillors who led the campaign were Labour representatives, this was far from a partisan issue. For a start, the male councillors who opposed them, who thought that the maternity committee didn't need special representation, were also from the Labour Party. More importantly, the three drew in women from across the political spectrum in their campaign. Conservative and liberal women's organisations joined them. So too did women who were not normally involved in party politics at all. Ordinary housewives in Walsall who wanted to ensure that the hospitals in which they were to give birth and the maternity services provided to them by the council were run by women who prioritised their care and the care of their children. On the one hand, the council were just debating whether or not two committees should be separated or amalgamated as one, not, on the face of it, the most exciting of questions. But on the other hand, they were being asked to consider whether the issue of maternity care, which affected vast numbers of women living locally, should be given due consideration. The women of Walsall certainly thought that it should. On the day of the debate, in early January 1939, the Walsall Observer reported that Perhaps never before had so many women crowded into the public gallery. Some of them were prepared to stand for over three hours. Although the newspaper was keen to point out that the women were... Modestly quiet, as real ladies always are. The spirit of Mrs Pankhurst was nowhere in evidence. In the end, the campaign was only partially successful. The council voted that the maternity committee should be separate from the health committee to allow due consideration to be given to these important matters. But they also voted in Councillor Arthur Stanley, a man, to be its chair. Nonetheless, this incident demonstrates just how important and uniting so-called women's issues could be. A few months later, in March 1939, just as the country was gearing up for the outbreak of the Second World War, there was a by-election in Walsall when a vacancy appeared on the town council. Three people stood from the Conservative, Liberal and Labour parties. The Labour and Liberal candidates were both women and the Liberal, Eva Brockhurst, won. Labour's candidate, Jane Deakin, praised her opponent when the results were announced. Even though they came from different parties, she congratulated Brockhurst on her win and said, I am very glad that a woman had been returned, because the help of women was very necessary in council work. 
Eva Brockhurst was the 50th woman elected to a council in the black country before the outbreak of war once again meant that elections were suspended for the duration. While this is in many ways a huge achievement, women still made up only a tiny minority of local councillors. No wonder, then, that at times they were prepared to work together cross-party and celebrate each other's successes, even when their political views were different. Local government work isn't particularly celebrated or exciting. Often, like in Walsall's maternity committee debate, it's about whether this or that committee has control of a certain issue. And this can often seem, especially at first glance, to be quite dry and boring. But for women in the early 20th century, women who had only just got the vote, being elected to local councils meant that they were able to carve out a space for themselves in local politics and that they could go on to make an impact on the lives of other black country women. They were not just involved in council work relating to the welfare of women and children. Like today, councillors both male and female had to be involved with a huge range of issues, from where street lamps should be positioned, to when buses should run, to how much funding various local institutions should get. But it is notable that so many women, once elected, sought to become involved with education committees, or maternity committees, or child welfare work. These women often felt that they had a particular expertise to offer in issues relating to women and children, and that their voices should be heard in these matters. They are rarely remembered today, but their contributions to the well-being of men, women and children living locally should not be forgotten. You can discover more podcasts, films and articles about the movement for women's suffrage and the political history of the black country at our website, www.historywm.com, where you can also order Nicola Gould's fascinating book, Words and Deeds, Birmingham Suffragists and Suffragettes, 1832-1918. to 1918.